is our health care a system? You're listening to ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and joining me today is Mr. David Johnson. He's a managing director in the healthcare group of City Global Markets. Thank you very much, Mr. Johnson, for joining us. Thank you, Maury. Uh, can you tell me, to begin with, what is the unique character of America's healthcare system? Uh, let me start with a story. About 20 years ago, I had to give a talk to a group of New Jersey legislators, and they wanted me, among other things, to answer the question why is the U.S. healthcare system the way it is? Not like Europe, not like Canada. And I, um, I had never really thought about it, to tell you the truth. I'd just been working in it on the finance side. And so it was two weeks before, and I hadn't gotten an idea, and it was a week before, and uh, two or three days before, I, I still wasn't sure, but I just started writing down what I thought were some quintessential American values, things like we're good in a crisis but bad at long-term planning. We believe in competitive financial markets, but we distrust big government. We revere the individual. We have a strong community orientation. We have insatiable demand. We believe in miracles, uh, love technology. And I read those around the country, and as I kind of looked at it... This and winning, I think. And winning, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Being number one, right. of course. And I read those around the country, and what distills out of that is a healthcare system that provides the absolute best healthcare that money can buy, absolute world leader in, in technology and innovation, but at the same time has enormous coverage gaps and a maldistribution of facilities and practitioners, and uh, that's evidenced by... Um, 40 million, 50 million people uh, without health insurance, many medically underserved areas, and so on. Uh, and so the, the punchline to the question was, uh, if you want to understand why we have the health care system we do, look in the mirror. It reflects who we are as a people, our values and experience. And I think that becomes an interesting avenue to look at the health care system because in some respects, how do you explain why we as a society tolerate 50 million people without health insurance? We're the only industrialized country that doesn't provide health insurance to its citizens. And my own belief is that's uh, deeply ingrained in our, our DNA and a byproduct of our belief in, in rugged individualism. And to some extent, if people don't have health insurance, we view it as their own fault. So in other words, our values and our histories have led us to this particular point. You use the word fragmentation, and certainly it's not that hard to see how fragmented our system is, but you also say that our fragmentation is ironic. What did you mean by that? Ironic is a misused word, I think, quite a bit, but it's where a perceived strength is, uh, when looked at more closely, also reveals a weakness. Step out of healthcare for a second. You know, I think you could argue, and not many would disagree now, that our attempt to uh, to go into Iraq as the nation's sole uh, superpower was was ironic in some respect. What appears as a strength, and indeed was a strength, unmatched military prowess, our ability to extend that on a global basis, allowed us to go into Iraq. But the overbelief, overconfidence in our ability to execute a difficult mission has actually turned that into something that has been much longer term, much more costly, much more damaging to our national reputation than anyone, anyone, and certainly any of the planners uh, would have uh, would have anticipated. So. In that sense, that's what I mean by ironic, the sense that what appears as a perceived strength actually has, when upon closer examination, weakness. Again, I think when you're looking at the American healthcare system, 
we have so many perceived strengths. Our, our hospitals, our technology, the level of training of our physicians, our ability to attract the best and the brightest from other countries, not only to practice medicine, but to conduct research at, at first glance, make the health system appear without rival in the rest of the world. But in some respects, upon closer examination, that's why I'm so interested in values on closer inspection of those values. We find that there is a byproduct that isn't positive, and that is that we have a society with uneven access to health care. We have a system that tends to respond to crisis and is terrible at many logical things like disease management, preventive care, promotive care, and so on. And again, that's a function of the fragmentation, of the fact that the parts work independently and in some cases produce remarkable results, but in other cases produce results that are terribly disappointing. Yeah, in, in 1993, our president said, the system is badly broken and it's time to fix it. And now we're looking at it many years later, and we're almost at the exact same place entering uh, now a, uh, an election campaign. Certainly, I grew up with, and I'm not an economist, I'm a physician, but I grew up in my home that markets would resolve all financial problems, that this was a market-driven economy. But in our particular profession, supply doesn't necessarily meet demand, especially when you have a third-party payer picking up the bill. How would you respond to what is known as Romer's Law? To the larger point, uh, I think healthcare economics is frequently counterintuitive. Get to Romer's Law in a second, but, you know, another interesting counterintuitive aspect of healthcare economics is that investment in technology adds costs. In almost every other industry, you can tick them off, uh, banking, automotive, warehousing, retail, Investment in technology reduces costs by creating greater efficiency. Uh, in healthcare, as I said, when hospitals and physicians invest in technology, it uh, invariably raises costs. Uh, another counterintuitive example was uh, Romer's Law, which is based on the work of a, a healthcare public policy researcher uh, from UCLA, actually died a couple of years ago. But he noticed in the early 60s that rather than uh, demand driving supply, that supply was driving demand. And in essence, uh, I'll give you kind of a basic example. If you have more cardiac cath labs and more cardiac surgeons in any given area, that area is going to end up with more cardiac cath procedures, whether or not there's a medical necessity for it. And the reason that occurs is our system really isn't a market-based system in the way I think most of us know it. First of all, the the patient receiving the care isn't directly paying for it in almost all circumstances. That's done by a, by a third party, either an insurance company or the government. The person determining the level of care is a physician or a hospital that then negotiates directly with the insurers or receives the government payment. So by and large, the determination of whether or not something gets done is a function of reimbursement, not of market behavior. And that was Milton Romer's observation was that uh, supply can drive demand if there's a high likelihood that a third party will reimburse the cost of those services. And even though he made that observation in 1960, that's still largely true today. I mean, there's been all kinds of reform around the margins, but we're still basically in a system where hospitals and doctors provide healthcare services generally around acute episodes of disease or injury, and they submit their work for payment to a third party, and it's not really subject to the normal rules of supply and demand. So the more facilities, the more practitioners you have. More, you may have seen um, a report that came out from the Dartmouth Atlas about a month ago, and the physician named Jack Wenberg that's been doing 
studies of Medicare use for uh, payment and, and use for years, and he's uh, got filled volumes that show how different areas of the country have different practice patterns. His latest study looked at the cost of chronic care for Medicare in the last two years of life, and I think part of the reason this particular study's gotten more publicity is that he focused on the five highest-ranked medical centers, academic medical centers from the U.S. News and World Report study, and we can talk about that if you want a little later, but all household names, uh, the Cleveland Clinic, the Mayo Clinic, Johns Hopkins, Mass General, and UCLA. Uh, and it turns out that uh, the Mayo Clinic had the lowest cost, Medicare paid a lower cost for uh, chronic care in the last two years of life than any of the other five. It was just over 50000 UCLA had the highest cost at just under 100000 and the reason for the difference wasn't that UCLA charged higher prices because, by and large, Medicare pays the same with some differences for all procedures. It's just if you happen to be a patient at UCLA, you got a lot more medical care. you got uh, more procedures, more tests, more days in the ICU. Now, digging more deeply into that, the defenders of that type of uh, aggressive treatment will say that they are being aggressive, that they're going the extra mile for their patients. If you talk to the president of the Mayo Clinic, what he will say is that the physicians are, are salaried. Uh, they're not induced to do more than they should do. They pay attention to end-of-life needs of the patient. They have a coordinated information system. And so it's that type of coordinated care that leads to the lower costs. I don't think anybody would argue that the Mayo Clinic doesn't deliver uh, superior health care, but in this case they're doing it for half the cost of, of UCLA. And so the real question is that UCLA, which is a more common model where you have uh, independent physicians, multi-specialists operating their own practices that will end up with duplicative tests, uh, not shared information, and then more care. And I think it's a, a very legitimate question whether at the end of the day that's better care. In fact, I think most would argue it's probably not. So it's, it's more money for worse care. So this whole question of coordination is very important, and, and this then gets back again, to sort of market uh, relationships, Romer's Law, and, and why current healthcare practices really don't follow market behavior. You know, that uh, is interesting because the uh, new golden boy, so to speak, is our, actually our own VA system, right, which, right. Uh, you know, has a much more integrated system and integrated charts. There are no cost figures that I, you know, have to look at, but certainly they seem to be doing a very, very good job having a more integrated system. I'm not an expert on the VA system by any means, but I'd agree with you that they're doing some very logical things. You know, if you think broadly about the population the VA serves, it's a sicker population, more chronic conditions, more substance abuse, greater injuries, I mean, you know, as you would expect from a population of veterans. And yet the VA several years ago embarked on a path that was designed to treat the overall health care of their population because they own the risk as opposed to being episodic and just treating disease when it began to present itself. So they were the first to, um, to institute uh, electronic medical records throughout their system. It's called VISTA. It's an open source software platform. Uh, it's available to anybody in the world. Veterans today can go into any veterans hospital in any part of the country and their medical records will be available. So that means that there isn't the confusion or the extra testing and so on. It's, it's, it's immediate and it's accessible. But above and beyond that, they have been very aggressive in uh, preventative care and disease management. I'm sure many of your listeners work with, with diabetes patients and, and know that managing diabetes uh, is a lifelong task and requires uh, attention, uh, monitoring, and so on. But done well, it dramatically prolongs 
uh, an individual's life, dramatically improves that individual's quality of life, and is less drag, less cost on the healthcare system. Yeah, you know, I remember recently uh, Michael Moore's most recent movie about the healthcare industry ends with a famous quote, the greatness of America lies not in being more enlightened than other countries and nations, but rather in her ability to repair her faults. In talking to you today, we've certainly touched on some areas that our health care system has to begin to look at, and one has to wonder, are we going to be able, in the next generation of doctors and hospitals and hospital boards, to be able to resolve some of these very, very difficult problems that seem to be based on our history and our values? And I want to thank... Uh, Mr. David Johnson, who's been our guest today, he's a managing director with Healthcare Group of City Global Markets. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. To listen to our on-demand library, visit us at ReachMD.com. If you have comments or suggestions, call us at 888-XM-157. Thank you for listening. <laughs>